turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, for our reading. Mark, chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 35. And the same day when the evening was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And I've entitled my message today, In the Same Boat. Now we're entering a new section of Mark's Gospel today that spans from our first verse, chapter 4, verse 35, through to chapter 5, verse 43. Therein is contained four of the greatest miracles that were ever performed by our Lord Jesus. And so we see Mark's pattern is that after the parables follow the miracles. And we have spent four, even five weeks looking at four parables. And now we come to the miracles of the servant of Jehovah. Now there is a very interesting lesson for us all. Because the works of the Lord Jesus are following his words. He has spoken, and now he authenticates his words by the works that he performs. And that's very important for us as Christians. One thing to say that we're Christian, to quote the verses, but it's another thing to live up to them, to follow in the Master's footsteps. And here we have a vivid account, more than any other of the writers, of this first great miracle of our Lord Jesus recorded in Mark. And Again, it indicates that he probably received this account from an eyewitness, uh, most likely Peter the Apostle, who was in the boat. But I want you to see this morning that whilst these miracles are coming after the parables, these miracles, particularly here in Mark's Gospel at this moment, are actually parables in themselves. But they are, if you like, parables in action. They're wrought one after the other within the course of a few days. And indeed, the one we're going to look at this morning was performed on the very day, the same day that he gave the four parables that he spoke. And first of all, we have this storm at sea in verse 35 to 41, which demonstrates the power of the servant of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus, over the forces of nature. Then the verse 
1 to 20 and chapter 5, we see this wonderful story of the demoniac and his deliverance from the legion of demons. And that demonstrates the power of the servant over the world of spirits. And then we find in chapter 5 also, verse 25 to 34, that the Lord delivers a woman of an incurable disease, the issue of blood. And that demonstrates the power of the servant of the Lord over physical illness. And then in this section, finally in verse 35 of chapter 5 to 43, we see that the Lord was able to deliver a young child from death. The power of the servant over the realm of death. And in each case in this section, these four miracles demonstrate the power of Christ overcoming hostile forces, whether it be the forces of nature, demonic forces, the forces of disease and illness, or the very force of death itself. Mark's emphasis is, man's extremity is God's opportunity. God loves to display himself in the midst of our problems. And there are crises of differing kinds in this section. We have a storm that no seaman could overcome. We have a demoniac that no man could tame. We have a disease that no physician could cure. And we have a tragedy that no parent could avert. And these differing trials and crises also differed in the type of people that they affected. You have a storm that is affecting a company of men on the sea. Some of them were fishermen, sailors. You have demons affecting one man alone among the tombs. You have disease affecting one woman who sought to hide in the crowd. And then you have death affecting a child in her own father's house. And what Mark is presenting to us is the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who would become the Savior of the world, proved his sufficiency for every circumstance and took an opportunity to show it in the midst of men's extremity. Now let us look at this first miracle that Mark presents to us. The storm at sea. Let me suggest to you, first of all, of three headings. The first is the satanic storm. I believe that this storm was satanic in origin. If you look at verse 35 and 36, let's read them again. And the same day when even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitudes, they took him, even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. Now that's an interesting statement that we'll come back to again later on. They took him along in the boat as he was. Immediately, without any provisions or preparations, after teaching these four parables, they pushed off to sea, taking the Lord Jesus in the same boat from which he had preached in that afternoon, those parables, during, during that day, they take him into the middle of the lake and other little uh, ships accompany them. Now, I don't know whether you know much about the Sea of Galilee, but it's only about eight miles across and it's notoriously prone to storms and squalls, very violent natures. It's situated about 700 feet below sea level 
and it's surrounded west, north, and east by mountains that rise about three or 4,000 feet above sea level. And, and that causes a phenomenon because of the geography of where the lake is that there's a varying climate at lake level and at peak level of the mountains. The climate varies so greatly that freak storms can happen very suddenly. You might say, well, if that is the case, and this is nothing abnormal, why are you saying this is a satanic storm? Well, the first reason is it, was, it would seem more severe than the usual storms in the Lake of Galilee. These hardened fishermen, we know that Peter, Andrew, James, and John at least were, were experienced in sailing. They were terrified. It would seem unusual that if they had experienced out in this lake and of these type of storms, that they would have been so terrified. But also verse 39 gives us a clue as to the satanic origin of the storm because the Lord's rebuke of it is peace, be still, which literally in the original language could be translated, be muzzled. That was used in chapter 1 and verse 25 of the Lord's exorcism of a demon where he told it to be quiet. Satan, we know in the Gospels, was constantly attempting to disrupt the servant of the Lord's servant in the will of God. You remember the people of Nazareth attempting to push the Lord Jesus over the cliff. But he was delivered from that because he was doing God's will. And we see in chapter 5 and verse 1 to 20 that the Lord is on his way to deliver a demoniac of a legion of devils. He's here to deliver the demon-possessed. And I believe that Satan was trying to disrupt him in that work. But I want you to notice what seems to be an irony. Even some might say a contradiction, though it is not. Although Satan is, I believe, involved in originating this storm, verse 35 tells us that it was the Lord Jesus who said to them, let us pass over unto the other side. Now, right away, what that presents us with is the mystery of God's providence. Let me explain that to you. The Lord said, let us go over to the other side. And yet they're going into the midst of a storm that Satan instigates for them, and the Lord allows them to go through it. Sounds a bit like life, doesn't it? How the Lord permits us to go through certain storms, we don't understand why. And as the book of Job teaches us, sometimes those storms can be of satanic origin, but God allows them for his own purpose. I can't explain that. Neither can you, by the way. But it's a fact. That storms will be allowed into our lives by God. Even storms that are instigated by the devil, he will allow them. Now, as I've already said, this is a parable in action. And the message that it gives us right away is that this raging sea is a picture of the storms of life through which all believers are called to pass. The servant is not greater than his Lord. And if he is the servant of Jehovah and having to go down this path of suffering that will lead to the cross, as Mark so graphically paints for us, we must take up our crosses and go down the same road and face the same storms. We must be in the same boat. 
And oftentimes it's so perplexing and we might even wonder if the Savior cares at all. But let's see the bigger picture for a moment. Because this parable in action is not disconnected from the preceding parables that were spoken. It follows on in the same context. And you remember I taught you last Sunday morning that these were mystery parables of the kingdom. And I'm not going into all of it, but save to say that these particularly spoke prophetically about the interim period when the king was absent. He had presented the kingdom, and the kingdom had been rejected by the Jews, and it's sown in the hearts of men who believe in him, but he's gone until he comes again to set up his earthly kingdom. And so we now have a parable in action that took place on the same day as he spoke those kingdom mystery parables, happening in the same boat from which he spoke them. And what do you think he is saying in this parable in action? You will go through storms in my absence. And Mark wrote, of course, this gospel to encourage Roman believers who were either facing or about to face Nero's terrible persecutions. And it might have seemed for these early Christians that the king was absent and he didn't care what they were going through, being fed to the lions and burned to death. Maybe it seemed he wasn't there because he wasn't preventing these storms taking place. But the Lord wanted these disciples and those who would follow to know he does hear the cries of his disciples. And he reveals himself in the midst of life's storms. You see, Mark's readers who were about to be persecuted and some of them martyred for their faith, they needed to know that their Lord was the suffering servant who suffered and died for them. But they also needed to know that he was triumphant over death. And in him they could be triumphant even in the midst of death itself. It's not surprising that in the early church, church Christian art, the church was depicted as a boat driven upon a perilous sea and Jesus standing in the midst. So this is a parable in action. After giving them these spoken parables about what it would be like when he was away from the earth until he comes again, now he is showing them the type of storms that they would go through. But Jesus will be in the midst. He's telling them there is nothing to fear. Now, of course, that's the fact. But often it is not the reality that we experience, nor was it the reality the disciples experienced. They experienced, during this satanic storm, the servant asleep. In verse 38 we read, He was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. They woke him and said, Master, do you not care that we perish? And let's remember where we are here. The Lord Jesus has just spent the whole day serving the Lord. This is the end of a hectic 24 hours. Remember where we've come from. Earlier in the day, he's faced opposition from his enemies who said that he was possessed by Beelzebub. He's misunderstood by his own friends and family. He has just preached to numerous crowds and multitudes several times along the seashore. 
He had interpreted those same parables privately to his own disciples. He's at the end of the day. He's weary and he's tired. And he's now taking the opportunity as they cross this eight miles across the lake to rest. That's a comfort, isn't it? Even the Lord Jesus needed to rest. He wasn't weary of the work, but he was weary in the work. And it presents to us the the mystery of the humanity of the Lord Jesus. And in a moment, of course, his divinity is going to be displayed. But most of you will know Psalm 121, verse 4, that he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And yet here the Lord Jesus is sleeping. Why? Because though he had his divine nature intact when he was on the earth, he took to himself another nature, a human nature, the likeness of our sinful flesh. Not only that he might taste death for every man, but that he might live life for every man, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Isn't that what Hebrews 2.18 says? For in that he himself hath suffered being tested or tempted, he is able to succor them that are tested or tempted. It's wonderful, isn't it? The servant sleeps. Now, this is the only record that we have in the Gospels, this uh, miracle of the servant sleeping. And yet, yet he is interrupted in his sleep by those he's come to serve. It's interesting that he is so tired, so wearied, that he's not wakened by the violent squall, and yet the cries of his own disciple arouses him immediately. I think that's lovely. It's like some of you mothers, you might sleep through a thunderstorm, but the faintest whimper of your little infant instantly awakens you from rest. But the tragedy of this event is the disciples did not know or understand his control over the circumstances that were around them or indeed his care for them in the midst of it. And so they waken him with the cry, Carest thou not that we perish? What was their problem? Well, like us, they judged the Lord by feeble sense, but did not trust him for his grace. They failed to see that behind a frowning providence there hides a smiling face. And like us, so often, they saw the wind, they saw the waves, and they doubted. Yet they should have trusted even in a sleeping Christ. I don't know about you. But there are times in life where one can feel that God is unconscious to the storms of your life. Maybe you're too pious for that. But the psalmists felt it. The prophets felt it. The disciples felt it. The apostles felt it. Times when you maybe think God has gone asleep. God is unconscious. He's not aware of what you're going through. Or if he's aware, he obviously doesn't care. Or he's not answering the cries that are from the depths of your being. Listen to the psalmist in 13 and 1. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? 
How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Some of you would pull him aside and tell him about God's sovereignty and all the rest. That's the way he felt. Song of Solomon pictorially speaks about how this Shulamite opened to her beloved, but her beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. And she says, My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Do you ever feel like that with God? Do you ever experience what some have called the dark night of the soul? Can I say to you, if you've never experienced it and you're truly a child of God, one day you will experience it. It's inevitable. Why? Because the servants of the Lord must tread the path of the servant of the Lord. And it's not always a path of roses, but it certainly is a path of crucifixion. Maybe you find yourself just now in a storm. God seems millions of miles away. And you're asking like the disciples, does he care? I mean, did Jesus know this storm was coming? Do you think he did? When he put his head upon the pillow? It's like the question, did Jesus not know that Lazarus was going to die? And so the question comes from his sisters, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Did he not know? Of course he knew. He knew Lazarus was going to die. He knew the storm was coming. But it was all part of that day's curriculum for those servants of the Lord. They were in his school of faith. And these were lessons that could only be learned through storms and through trials. And this is a hard lesson in itself to learn. John Newton found it difficult to get his head round it. And he put this mental and spiritual struggle into a poem which is very dear to me. And I've shared it with many of you. And it goes like this. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favoured hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all my fair designs I schemed, blasted my girds and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. The Lord allows the storms that our faith would grow stronger in the test. And if we enter the satanic storm and the servant seems to sleep, it's a test. 
It's a test of our faith. These disciples failed it. I have failed it. Many of us will feel it. And so the Savior comes to them and to us with his censure. This is the censure of the Son of God. In verse 39, look at it. Do you not care that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then in verse 40, he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now first of all, he rebuked the, the winds and the sea. He said, be muzzled. It's used, as I said, chapter 125 of his uh, exorcism of a demon. It's also used of the muzzling of an ox. And it's used of the Lord Jesus silencing the Pharisees. Now what this was, was the Lord displaying his divine nature. This was a divine act. And in the Old Testament, the stilling of the sea and a storm was ascribed only to Jehovah. Listen to one psalm. There's many. 89. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or, who, or, or to thy faithfulness round about thee, thou rulest the raging sea when the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. The Lord was revealing himself to these doubting disciples as the creator whose creation would be subject to the creator's voice. And yet how slow their minds were to realize the significance of his actions. They, they should have acknowledged him as the Son of God, as the Jehovah of the Old Testament in Jesus of Galilee. And they say in verse 41, what manner of man is this? Who is this? That's not a commendable thing. We quote it like that. They still haven't got who he is. Who is this, a man of sorrows, walking sadly life's hard way, homeless, weary, sighing, weeping over sin and Satan's sway? Tis our God, our glorious Savior, who above the starry sky now for us a place prepareth where no tear can dim the eye. He rebuked the winds and the waves and they still didn't get it. So verse 40, he rebukes them and he gently chides his disciples. Why? Because they feared. And they feared and therefore failed the test. They needed faith to pass. They should have believed. Now let me give you very clearly what they should have believed as one who has failed this test many times. First of all, they should have believed his promise. Promise? Yes, there's a promise here in these verses. Verse 35, look at it. Before they set out in that boat across the lake, he said to them, let us pass over unto the other side. He didn't say, let us attempt or make a go of getting over because you never know a storm might come and we might be all lost and drowned. No. He said, let us go over to the other side. He promised them. Now here's a lesson. Romans 10 and 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And they never heard that, you see. Or if they heard it, they didn't remember it. 
This was a practical test of what they had already heard. He had spoken his word in the boat, in the parables. He had spoken his word before he set off at the shore. And this was a test of whether they believed his word, that they would get over to the other side. God permits trials in our lives because it's not enough to learn lessons. Did you hear that? It's not enough to learn lessons. We are expected to live lives. We're meant to live our faith and claim the promises of God and live in them in the midst of the darkest devilish storms. I know it's hard. But it's a question whether or not we believe God. They should have believed first of all because of Christ's promise. But secondly, they should have believed because of his presence. It was bad enough that they didn't recognize that the servant of the Lord was the son of God. But they failed to comprehend the significance that they were in the same boat as him. I think this is so interesting. Verse 26, where it says, They took him along in the boat as he was. Now, what does that mean? He was tired. After the day's ministry, he was, we could say, he was exhausted physically. But they thought, I think, we'll take care of him. Boy, he's had a hard day. All those people, they teach. And explain things to us and blasphemy from his enemies and, and, and unbelief from his own family. We'll take him as he is into this boat and he'll be able to have a, a good rest. He's in our care now. And by their sight, they only saw the humanity of Christ, even in infirmity and weakness. But they failed to see by faith that even when he was asleep, the divine Lord was taking care of him. Jane Darby puts it very well, and so I'll just quote him. They should have remembered their own connection with him. They think only of themselves. Now, faith would have recognized that they were in the same ship with him. That is to say, if Jesus leaves, thinking of the parables he's spoken, the seed he has sown to grow until the harvest, he is nonetheless in the same vessel. He shares not the less truly the lot of his followers, or rather they share his. The dangers are the dangers he and his work are in. That is, there is really none. And how great is the foolishness of their unbelief. Think of their supposing when the Son of God has come into the world to accomplish redemption and the settled purposes of God that by to man's eye an accidental storm he and all his work should unexpectedly sink in the lake. We are blessed be his name in the same boat with him and if he is the Son of God it will not sink and neither shall we. What's the lesson? Well, the first lesson in this parable and action is his servants will not be exempt from the storm. Satanic storms of persecution and trials will come. 
But they didn't deviate the Lord Jesus Christ from God's will and from that course. And we will be persecuted and tried if we're faithful. But if you're going to survive through those storms, even the satanic ones, you must have faith in him, even when he seems to be farthest away than ever. Cry out to him. And so often in the darkest storms, at the last minute, the Lord Jesus allows the storm to reveal himself. Cry in faith, not in unbelief. And he has promised he will come to you. Where's he promised that? John 14, 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you comfortless. I will Come to you. Here's a second lesson. Not only will we go through these things, but I'll, I'll teach it to you in a question. Does this parable in action teach us that Christ will always miraculously deliver from the storms? Is that what it teaches? Some present it like that, but it doesn't teach that. Because in Acts 27, Paul went through a, a storm. And the Lord didn't come for him. And Paul was a man of great faith. And these disciples, Jesus said, had no faith. Now listen carefully. Their faith had got nothing to do with the calming of the storm. Jesus calmed the storm because it was God's will to do it. But their faith had everything to do with believing that they would come to no harm because Christ was in the boat with them. And therefore, if Christ was in the boat, or put it better, if they were in his boat, it could never sink. <laughs> Paul got that message in his storm, though his boat was dashed, because he said to the crew, There stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul. Thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that steal with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. That was before the storm. The faith isn't to get you out of it. The faith is to get you through it. Warren Wearsby put it well when he said, The greatest danger was not the wind of the waves, it was the unbelief in their hearts. Our greatest problems are within us, not around us. That is profound. Our greatest problems are within us, not around us. Sometimes God does save us from trouble, praise his name. Sometimes he saves us in the trouble. Sometimes he saves us from death. Like Peter who was delivered from jail and death itself. But sometimes he uses our deaths to glorify his name. Like the beheading of the Apostle James. The point is. We are in the same boat as Christ. Have you got that message? That's, I believe, what was behind, in a sense, Paul's writing as it is written in Romans 8. For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. 
And yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Does he always deliver from the storm? No. But if we believe in him, he always delivers in it. Always. And always reveals himself in it. In the mid-70s, the KGB in Moscow were picking up underground church leaders and they picked up a Baptist leader who they suspected was printing illegal scriptures on a homemade printing press they beat and tortured him to find out the whereabouts of the press, but he didn't utter a word. And in desperation, they brought his 16-year-old son, and they said, we will beat him to death in front of you unless you tell us where it is. And immediately the man began to waver, as any of us would. This was too much. How could he watch his precious son die? And then the blows began to descend upon that young lad. He heard the crunch of bones and the scream of agony, those sounds went straight to that pastor's soul and he was just about to cry out stop I'll tell you save my son when suddenly the boy cried in the midst of his pain dad don't give up I can see Jesus coming for me and he's beautiful dad don't give up I can see Jesus coming for me and he's beautiful and with those words the son died God's servant is the master of every situation and the conqueror of every enemy. And if we trust him and follow his orders, we need never be afraid. Never. Amy Carmichael put it like this. Thou art the Lord who slept upon the pillow. Thou art the Lord who soothed the furious sea. What matter beating wind and tossing billow if only we are in the boat? with thee keep us in quiet through the age long minute do you know what an age long minute is a minute in the storm that feels like an eternity keep us in quiet through the age long minute while the waves are high and wind is shrill can the boat sink when thou dear lord art in it can the heart faint that waiteth on thy will the answer is no. No water can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. Because we're in his boat. You're in his boat. You cannot sink. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen.